Matthew 2 verse 11 says, They opened their treasures and presented him, that is the baby Jesus with Mary and Joseph of course, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Oh, why haven't Very sensitive. Except I should point that way. Now the church down the ages has uh, seen in those three gifts a kind of prophetic significance of which, so far as we're aware, uh, the, let's say there were three of them. Uh, we, know, we don't know how many there were. There were three gifts. We assume there were three magi. As far as we're aware, they weren't aware either. We don't know that. But in the ancient world, visitors to royal personages would have brought costly gifts. And these three commodities, of which much of the ancient world's trading was based on, would have been the kind of gifts that you would have brought to a king or someone important. According to some pagan sources, frankincense would have been an appropriate offering to the gods, even the Jewish Messiah. Revelation, uh, the last book in the Bible, in Revelation 18, verse 13, uh, there is a list of various commodities that were traded, and among them, uh, incense, so that's the prepared form, which it would be used for burning in temples and so on, and frankincense, both are mentioned. Frankincense being the raw gum among the kind of commodities that were traded in the first century. They were highly prized. They were very valuable, extremely valuable. So for Mary and Joseph... Uh, These three gifts would have represented a very welcome addition to their otherwise meagre resources, probably paid for their excursion to Egypt, where they had to flee from the wrath of King Herod. Now, frankincense is a word uh, that seems to have come from Old French, uh, meaning pure or high-quality incense. It's an aromatic gum collected from trees or shrubs of the genus Boswellia, And there are a number of species of Boswellia in the Middle East. I think all of them produce frankincense. But today the main source of frankincense comes from the species Boswellia sacra from southern Arabia and the Yemen. Interesting, I think, that it's called sacra, Boswellia sacra, uh, something to do with holy or sacred use, I suppose. And as well as being a perfumer's ingredient, you can actually also buy little bottles of incense, frankincense capsules or pills to help relieve your arthritis or your stomach upsets. I discovered that when I googled it. Here are some pictures of botanical interest. Uh, there's the tree, there's the, there's the region, the, the map. There's some flowers and leaves for you. There's a little bit of uh, the gum, dried gum. And there in the middle is, is what it, the way it's collected. It's a bit like rubber in a sense. They scar or damage the Uh, bark of the tree and the gum exudes they collect it and dry it now we don't know whether Joseph or Mary or the major I saw any particular significance in the the three gifts that were brought to them and Matthew the gospel writer doesn't make any comment whatsoever yet the church was quick to see in the gold the kingly nature of the newborn child and in the myrrh the fact that death would, be, would eventually be a significant part of uh, his mission. But frankincense, for some, has signified his deity, that is, uh, truly God incarnate, God taking human nature so that he might legitimately die instead of you and me for our sins. But for other people, frankincense signifies Christ's priesthood. And that's the angle that I want to uh, go down today. 
I suppose in the prevailing climate of disbelief in Christ's deity, the fact that he is God, it wouldn't be surprising that some might tend towards a defence of that core Christian doctrine. And it is a core Christian doctrine. It is at the centre of what we believe. And so we find uh, John Henry Hopkins' original version of his Three Kings carol, you know, We Three Kings of Orient Are, uh, in the verse allocated to Melchior, tradition has even given these three guys' names, well, assuming there were three, he says, Melchior says, Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. And I suppose incense owns a deity nigh uh, could be construed, maybe a bit ambiguously, but I think he was subscribing to the deity idea. But what would first century Christians have made of the gift of incense, particularly those familiar with the Old Testament scriptures? Uh, We can speculate about what significance Persian magi would have made of their gift of frankincense. But I think the church would almost automatically have seen in incense the significance of its use use by priests of the Old Testament uh, right down the ages, down the centuries since Moses. And that's why I chose those verses from Exodus 30, where God tells Moses to construct an altar for burning incense. And that incense was to be burned morning and evening as part of the ritual worship of the tabernacle and later on the temple in Jerusalem. The altar of incense stood immediately in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple. At the doorway into God's presence, if you like. At least that's the symbolism of it. No one believed that, well... I guess they they did at times, but uh, no one officially believed that God actually lived in that tiny tiny cubicle uh, behind the curtain or that he literally sat on the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. But the whole setup did represent the fact that there was a significant barrier between God and his people. So much so that only on one day each year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could a man enter in through that curtain. But on a day-to-day basis, the priest on duty would burn incense and offer prayer twice each day. And that's what Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was doing when he was confronted by the angel who told him about John's imminent birth and later ministry. Three times in the book of Revelation, incense is linked with prayer. Uh, In Revelation 5.8, for example, John tells us that he saw each of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, you'll need to read the book to get the context, uh, who were before the throne of God holding golden bowls full of incense, uh, which John informs us are the prayers of the saints, God's people. So, I need to click, some of these um, slides have been doctored. So, I think it's quite easy to see and I hope you do too, how uh, the idea of incense and prayer are connected. The fragrant smoke rises and fills the space around the altar. And you can imagine then the prayer rising to the throne of God. Why the throne of God should be up, I don't know, but it's always been like that, hasn't it? Anyway, that's what priests did. They offered prayer and sacrifices and burned incense. But they also spoke from God to the people. It was a dual role because they also taught the law and sought to help, God's un- uh, help people understand what God required of them. Uh, and that came into its own particularly with Ezra after the return of the people from captivity in Babylonia. And truly they were Israel's vicars. 
they stood vicariously between God and his people until the day would dawn when that massive curtain, it was massive in the, tem- the second temple in Jesus' time, when that massive curtain of the most holy place was torn from top to bottom and a new and living way into God's presence was opened through the death of Jesus on the cross. The priests represented the people towards God on the one hand, but they also represented God to the people. There was no other way under the old covenant. So how significant it is that with the coming of God's Son into the world, that barrier should be dismantled. And each of us, because of our individual and living relationship with Christ, should have access to the throne of grace. Jesus has become under the new covenant, our great high priest. And that's why we had read to us that selection of verses from the book of Hebrews. I'm sorry it might have been a bit confusing, but uh, we could have read the whole of Hebrews, but uh, that would have taken a bit longer. Hebrews is actually an extended um, exposition of Christ's priesthood in the main, specifically in the context of that special day of the year, the Day of Atonement the ritual of which is described in Leviticus 16, and we could have read that too, but you'd have been totally confused if you're not confused already. In Hebrews, Jesus is called our great high priest. That, in my mind, links it with the frankincense. And the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, is going back in his thought to the Day of Atonement. So the work of our great high priest is described in terms of his going into the holiest place to bring about cleansing and make atonement for the people. Now the word atonement isn't one we use very much in everyday speech. It simply means to make at one. In other words, our relationship with our creator has been restored and we can be at one with him. Uh, And one of the things that always strikes me as fascinating about these rituals of sacrifice and cleansing in the Old Testament is that despite the fact that animals and and cereals were used, they were accepted by God. And it says that the people were forgiven. And that's one of the points that Hebrews itself makes. But with the sacrifice of Christ, it was once for all. It didn't need to be repeated. Indeed, it couldn't be repeated because it was a perfect sacrifice. Not an animal for our sins, but a man like us, but with one exception, unlike us. He was without any kind of sin. So Hebrews tells us that not only are our sins forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ, but our consciences are cleansed too. Isn't that great? Wonderful. That gives us a completely fresh start in our relationship with God. And I think that's totally amazing. And if you think about it, it's mind-blowing. Just as the Levitical priests used to bring sacrifices and offerings, Jesus brought himself as our perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin. I don't know about you, but I suppose thinking of Jesus as a priest is possibly not that familiar. We think of him in other ways. We thought of him already, as of last week, as a king. And we, we certainly think of him as a sacrifice as he dies on the cross and as we come to the Lord's table at communion. That, that thought will be... To, our, to the fore in our minds, I'm sure. But as a priest, but if you consider the reams of, and there are lots of them, reams of instructions in the books, particularly of Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, 
in the Old Testament. Uh, all about the minute details of the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant in Israel. I hope you can realize that in many different ways, each one of those sacrifices speaks prophetically or of different aspects of what Jesus has done for us. I'll let you work it out for yourself. But for instance, there's a lot about the perfection of the sacrificial animals. They had to be perfect in every way. Uh, And when you look, uh, as another example, at the two goats that are involved in the Day of Atonement ritual, it's incredibly easy to see in the so-called scapegoat that was sent out into the wilderness with the sins of the people on it. It's a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who bears away the sins of the world. John 1, verse 29 and 36. But what I really want to focus on today isn't that sacrificial side of Jesus' ministry uh, as our great high priest, but his ministry as a priest who both receives and offers our prayers. Even when we don't know what to say, he's there, fielding our prayers. He listens, he hears us. He presents our prayers perfect, in perfection to God. And that's the part of his ministry which I believe is particularly linked with incense or frankincense. You probably have to read the whole of Hebrews to get the full picture of Jesus as high priest, particularly when you get to bits about Melchizedek, but I won't go down that line. But first of all, he intercedes for sinners, as the last verse that was read to us says. There it is up on the screen. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede. He prays for us. His priesthood at its most perfect. Jesus understands our predicament. Again, in chapter 4, verse 15, the verse is up there on the screen again. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He empathizes. He can do that because he is a man. He's human. Even though he has ascended into heaven, he shared and still shares our flesh and blood, as chapter 2.14 tells us. That was so he could be genuinely human. He had to be. He needed to be genuinely human. And therefore, be, so that he could be our substitute when it came to dying Instead of us. By his death, he broke the power of the devil, the one who holds the power of death. But he also had to be a pure sacrifice. Because if he had had any sins of his own, he could never be our sin bearer. And he could never have been raised from the dead either. Death can only hold sinners, you and me. But Jesus never sinned. That's not to say he wasn't tempted to sin. Hebrews 4.15 that I just referred to tells us that he was tempted in every way. Not just when Satan tempted him in the wilderness as he was preparing to begin his public ministry. But all through his life and not least in the Garden of Gethsemane when he had to face that most difficult choice that he ever had to make in his life. Whether to face death with its separation from Father God, or not. He never sinned, but he understands and empathises with the kinds of pressures that we have. He faced those pressures, but unlike us, he never ever gave in to them. And that means 
we can come to one who will always be sympathetic to our weaknesses. And that's amazing, don't you think? Never judgmental, always understanding and wanting to forgive and to heal. And he can forgive because he bore those sins that bring us to him in our need. In a few moments we'll be singing a hymn, a song, uh, that's on this theme really. It's, it's, it's quite an old hymn really, but it's been modernised as it were. But these words are in the first verse. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written, or I think some versions say hidden, on his heart. And that's a direct allusion, maybe with a little bit of artistic license, to Moses' instructions about the ritual costume, the vestments of the high priest, the garments of glory and beauty, as the King James Version puts it. The NIV, or the TNIV that we use here in church, puts it as dignity and honour. That's in Exodus 28, verse 2. But I rather like those older words. may not be quite such a good translation of Hebrew, but it's not bad. But it says something about the splendour and beauty, the glory and beauty of what the high priest was all about. The high priest's outer garment, worn when performing his priestly duties, the ephod, had two features that are significant here. The first was a pair of shoulder pieces. Whoops, it's doing some funny things. Here we are. That's not in the script, that's... See those shoulder pieces with the the two onyx stones? And on those two onyx stones were engraved the names, six on each side, of the twelve tribes of Israel. Exodus 28.12 says, Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Kind of going into God's presence and reminding God of who he was representing. As if God needed to be reminded, but it reminded the Israelites that, the, that that's what it was about. And likewise, the breastpiece, which was tied on over the ephod, bore 12 semi-precious stones, each of which bore the names of the 12 tribes. And the verse there, Exodus 28, 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece, breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. It's called the breastpiece of decision because it was like a pocket in which were kept two stones, the Urim and Thummim, which were, made to, uh, which were used to make decisions. That's why it's called the breastpiece of decision. But isn't that a beautiful picture? Don't you think so? And that's what Jesus does on our behalf. The symbolism of the temple ritual reminds us that our names are always on his shoulders, the hymn says it, on his hands. But always on his heart as he brings our needs before our Heavenly Father. And I think that's the most wonderful and beautiful thought. Pure glory and beauty, if you ask me. And that ministry never ends. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. He can never die. Hebrews 7.24 says he lives forever. His priesthood isn't based on his ancestry. All the Old Testament priests had to be descendants of Aaron. They had to be Levites, which Jesus definitely wasn't. Uh, And so in Hebrews 7.16 it says he has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. The message I want to bring to you today isn't about trying harder. A lot of sermons are like that, aren't they? Try harder. 
And you say, how? And I say, well, we're all in this boat together, aren't we? But it's not about that today. I don't want to burden you. And I don't want to ask you what kind of gift you would bring to Jesus. I think that was said last week. And it's, and it's right that we should ask ourselves that kind of thing. Jesus brings himself into the world, or God brings himself into the world as Jesus, as our gift, as his gift to us. What gift do we bring to him? That's not really what I want to concentrate. But rather I want to invite you to dwell, just to bask, if you will, in the beauty and glory of what Jesus has done for you and for me. And what he continues to do for you and for me. And particularly as we come in a moment to the Lord's table, those thoughts surely will draw from us that response. What will we give him? Well, we'll, we'll give him ourselves, won't we? But why is it we want to give him that response? Because we can live in the beauty and glory of what he's done for us. Frankincense signifies his priestly ministry. And that ministry is for you and for me. We are needy people. We are sinful people. We need God's grace and forgiveness constantly. Because he exercises that high priestly ministry now, indeed forevermore, until he comes again, his door is always open to each one of us. So then, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we do indeed want to take advantage, as it were, of that invitation issued through the writing of that wonderful book of Hebrews. And Lord, we do come and kneel before your throne of grace. And there's no barrier that now prevents us from doing so. There's no sacrifice that we need to bring because Jesus has done it all. We just bring ourselves in all our need and unworthiness to you. And we just want to thank you that you forgive us. You cleanse our consciences. You give us a fresh start whenever we come. And Lord, we thank you that it's all because of Jesus and what he has done. Praise his holy name as we pray in that holy name. Amen.